0: I want to ask you to do something here, and I want to ask if you cooperate here. Uh, take out a piece of paper, if you would, um, if you have a pen. If you don't, it's not going to make a difference. Take out a piece of paper. There's a, actually a bulletin insert for sermon notes. Just take out a, a piece of paper, and if you don't have a pen, then uh, maybe you can imagine a mental tablet in your mind, in which I want you to actually, either physically or mentally, write down names. Um, and actually, you might be better off, if, if you're writing on physical paper, to write um, abbreviated names. Don't actually write the names to protect the guilty. Um, what I'd like you to do is I'd, I'd like you to think of names of people who have mistreated you. Um, people who have um, treated you maliciously. Um, the people in your life that make life difficult. Um, that cause frustration. Frustration. Um, the kind of people that keep you up at night. Um, it could be your boss, your former employer, mother-in-law. I know some of you are thinking, you know, I came with a positive mood this morning, wanted to be uplifted by the message, and you start off talking about my mother-in-law. But if that happens to be a person in your life who is belittling, berating, and she's someone who causes kind of a sense of injustice and pain in your life, then I want you to write down her initials. Don't write her name down to protect the guilty, but I want you to write down the names in your mind or on paper of people who um, make life difficult for you. Um, It could be a family member. could be a political candidate. could be someone who's in office. And I really, I'm serious. I want you to either visualize the name or I want you to write the name because part of, of the... The putting the plow of God's word into the flesh of life is, is really um, making this personal. So I want you to just take a second and think about it. I thought about it this morning and I, I came up with two names uh, for me personally. Um, one's a little bit more distant, but it's, it, there's an injustice happening in my family, which is very painful. And um, this person's the kind of person that I, if, if, if I was just living in the flesh and, and venting my anger, I'd love to take behind a woodshed. Um, but I don't have that that, that ability, and I don't have that uh, authority. So who are the people in, in your life? And I want you to imagine their names or write down their initials. Go ahead. Because <laughs> it'll make a difference. All right, now what I want you to do is, hopefully you have followed my instruction. Um, in view of those names, with those names in mind, How are we, as followers of Jesus, to interact and relate to people who are mean on the playground or at work or in family, uh, who treat people with injustice, perhaps with malice, or they talk about you behind your back, or they treat you unfairly, or they play favorites and you're not the favorite? How are we as followers of Jesus, as Christians, supposed to relate to people like that? And the world is full of people like that. Sometimes those people are in the church too. Or to put this in more of a collective, how do we as a, as a collective of, of believers, that's what the church is, as a collective gathering of, of people who profess faith in Jesus. How, how are we to respond in a world um, where it seems as if injustice and hostility towards our faith and the claims of our faith seem to be increasing. How are we to interact with a world that is, is dark and full of injustice? That's a very, very important question. And, um, and in, in relation to that, how is it that we, according to our mission statement, spread a passion for Jesus in that context? It's not just to our friends and people we like that we're supposed to spread a passion for the supremacy of our Jesus, but but to people we don't like and aren't necessarily nice to us, or or people whose lives are, are infiltrated and, and dominated and defined by darkness. How are we supposed to do that? I believe that the the there's three chapters in this book of 1 Samuel that deal with that very issue. That is chapter 24, 25, and 26 of of 1 Samuel, take up a common theme. The theme of justice or injustice, vengeance, and faith. Justice or injustice, vengeance, and faith. That is, these three chapters, 24, 25, and 26, take up that common theme, but it does so in various ways. We're just going to look at 24 today. For example, in chapter 24, we find how David responds when the injustice comes from above him. That is, someone in authority over him. In chapter 25, we find from David's negative example how he's not supposed to respond to someone who acts unjustly underneath him. Bitter, old, evil guy by the name of Nabal. That is, it takes apart this, this, how do we live by faith when injustice comes from above and below um, in a way that honors the Lord? And I think there's three chapters devoted to this very topic because it's one of the things that the that, that, that Christians and followers of Jesus and before Jesus, uh, believers in Yahweh, um, have struggled with for hundreds and thousands of years. is How do we live out our faith amidst injustice? Uh, many of the Psalms are written um, as an expression of a life of faith underneath injustice. And this is something that we actually really struggle with at a very heart level, at the level of existence Um, How do I live out my faith in a way that honors the Lord, spreads a passion for Jesus when people are hurting and malicious and unjust? 24 is the first part of that, and that is how David relates or responds to injustice when it comes from above. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we're supposed to respond because he provides a, a positive example And then secondly, why? Like, where do we find the motivation and and the the drive, the the emotional strength to actually do what we know we're supposed to do? Well, the story of of 1 Samuel chapter 24 really begins uh, where chapter 23 ends. Chapter 23, Saul was at the very end. Saul was about ready. King Saul was about ready to take down David and gets word that the Philistines were attacking somewhere. And so he calls off the, the hunt. But at the beginning of chapter 24, he, he hears whereabouts of where, where David is. He's in the region of what's called En which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Um, it is a place that's very rugged, and at, quite literally, it's littered with caves. Well, he hears that David's down in the, in the area of, of En Gedi, and he begins a hunt, which leads him to what we might call a, a personal um, crisis. Uh, that is that... King Saul, is he's in this rugged, very desert region where there's no trees, um, littered with caves, uh, King Saul is, um, realizes that nature is calling. That is, he has to go to the restroom. Now, this chapter, in my personal estimation, is one of the most um, awkward, uh, peculiar, and quasi-humorous, perhaps, in the whole Bible. Here's a king of Israel who needs to go to the restroom. There's no trees, there's no jack-in-the-boxes, there's no McDonald's, there's no gas stations to stop at, no rest areas in which to find any kind of private setting in which you can go to the restroom. But there are caves everywhere. And so what we find is that he takes refuge in the privacy of a cave. However, also, at the beginning of this chapter, David, in an effort to get away, also hides in a cave. Now, this is is where... um, where we pick up reading in verse 3. And he, Saul, came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. <laughs> yes, the Bible actually said that. He went in to relieve himself. And it doesn't mean he went in to go to sleep, he would have been happy in a tent or something else. This is that he had to go to the restroom. The Bible's being just open about that. Um, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now this must have been just a little bit awkward. Um, not to mention scary on David's part. And the men of David said to him, here's the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall be, uh, seem good to you. So now Saul seeks relief in a cave, but it's the very same cave that David seeks refuge in. Like what are the chances Of all the hundreds of caves that that dot that region, region, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in caves in this this general region. So there's caves everywhere. What are the chances that the very cave that David and his men are are seeking refuge in would be the same cave that the king of Israel who's trying to kill him would go into to relieve himself? Well, the chances of of that happening by accident are are, are, are nil. That is, um, this is a providential meeting. And his men, David's men, read the signs of providence here, and they, they say to him, hey, you know, God has just served up your enemy on a silver platter. It's like he's here, he's alone, he's vulnerable, doesn't know we're here. All signs point to God has served him up for you to do away with him. That's, that's kind of the crisis that's going on in this cave. Now, the difficult thing about or dangerous thing I should say about interpreting Providence is at best at best we can guess or at best we might say it 's probable that the Lord is opening a door, but never certain now you and I if we 're you know biblical thinkers, we oftentimes look for god 's providential leading in things like um, which doors is he opening? Which opportunities is he closing down or extending? And so we oftentimes look for signs of providence to discern uh, the will of the Lord. And that's not bad. Um, Malachi in the book of Esther um, is discerning the working of God's providence when he says to Esther, perhaps it's for such a time as this. But p- perhaps, though, has a sense of contingency to it, not certainty. It could be that God in his providence brought Saul into this cave where David just happened to be hiding as a test. Would David by his own hand avenge the evil committed against him? He's been had, Saul's tried to kill him numerous times, displaced his family. I mean, there's, there's real injustice going on. Would David by his own hand avenge and therefore take the throne by his own strength? Or in this moment of test, would he trust and wait for the Lord by his hand to avenge the injustice and establish David as the king? It's a pretty, pretty big crisis. You see, providence can be read in different ways, which is why it's probable, never certain. And keep in mind, just kind of putting this all together and putting yourself in, in David's skin for a moment is that here are his men pressuring him. We find out later, they want David to kill the king. They're displaced too. They're homeless. They're, they're, they're a band of, of no-homed kind of soldiers. And so they're pushing David to kill him. Signs of providence seem to suggest that God is serving up Saul on a silver platter. And if I'm reading the Psalms of David correctly, I think David is justifiably angry and indignant over what has happened. So there's this crisis in the cave. King Saul doesn't know a thing about it. Why are you sitting there doing his business? <laughs> we have this crisis. What do I do? And so the text tells us that David sneaks up and he takes out a knife or something and he cuts off a piece of the robe of King Saul. Now the robe was probably laid aside so he could do his stuff. So he cuts off a piece and it says that his heart struck him, which is a way of saying that his conscience uh, struck him. That is, he, he felt like what he was doing was wrong. Now, why did he feel that it was wrong? I think the best answer for me is that his, his robe is a symbol of his kingdom. Earlier in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, when his, his robe rips, it is is seen and interpreted as a sign that the kingdom has been ripped from you. So perhaps it was David's way of symbolically revolting or rebelling is cutting a piece of the royal robe. It's not certain. But what's clear is that in the middle of doing it, after he cuts it, his heart and his conscience strike him. That is, he feels like this isn't right. This isn't right, this spirit of of perhaps rebellion or um, defiance that I feel towards this man. And he says, I cannot by my own hand, um, strike or, or, or use my hand against God's anointed. He had such respect for the man God had placed on the throne, despite the fact that he was corrupt. He had such respect that he recognized, I cannot move my hand against this man, against this king. And in fact, not only does he refuse to, to, um, to use his own hand, but we find that he actually gets in the way and he prevents his men from kill, killing King Saul. That is, David essentially, in this cave, saves the life of his enemy. Verse 7 tells us that David persuaded, and the Hebrew is a, a word for tear apart. It's used of lions tearing apart their prey. That is, David tore apart his men with these words, that he's, he was it was. These are powerful words. He's saying this isn't going to happen. Now, how they did this, whether whispering or what, we don't know. And did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So he gets out scot-free. See, here's David with an opportunity. refuses to, and not only does he refuse to, but he actually saves the life of the man who's trying to kill him. He saves his enemy. He extends mercy instead of vengeance. And that, I believe, is one of the ways in which God calls us as followers of Christ to relate to those who would hurt us unjustly or unfairly. Is to relate to them with mercy and not vengeance. That is, show mercy, not vengeance. And vengeance is when you attack back. And most of us do it verbally, not physically. Mother-in-law says something negative and you just, everything in you just pushes forward and words come out of your mouth to attack. It's vengeance. In that moment, in the heat of the moment, um, in the heat of the cave, David shows us an example of of giving mercy instead of vengeance. And that, I believe, is one of the ways that God has called us as his people to relate to the darkened powers around us, is to make sure we extend mercy, not vengeance. And that should... uh, Resonate with what you know of the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus when he told us, is, I say to you, who hear, love your enemies. He's not talking about a sympathetic kind of an emotional um, connection. He's talking about active doing of good to those who hate and those who do evil. Do good to those who hate you. We want to know how to live as either individuals or as a church in a, in a, in a world full of injustice. Well, let's continue to exercise and give mercy Um, rather than vengeance, to show mercy. So how are those names doing that you have in your mind or on paper? Is that how you treat them, with mercy, not vengeance, or vengeance instead of mercy? But there's more. As it left here, Saul leaves, and a short time after that, David runs out of the cave, and he bows down, and he falls before his enemy, King Saul, and he pleads his innocence. Verse 9. Why do you listen to the words? This is David's voice. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. You'll notice how many times he uses the phrase in my hand or the word hand. That's power, sign of power. He's put you in in my place of, of power. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, now he addresses Saul as his father, though he's not his physical father. My father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. I had you. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt me, you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. David's saying, "Um, what I did is not wicked, therefore my heart is good towards you, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David is pleading his innocence, comes out of the cave, and as proof, he offers the section of the robe saying, see, I had you right here. This proves to you that my heart has been innocent. What others have said about me is not true. I'm not after you. I'm not conspiring against you. That's what he's doing, pleading for his innocence. And he goes on to say that I I resolved that my hand is not going to be against you ever. It's the Lord's hand who will avenge. But I want you to notice something, that the way in which David pleads his case, which is also um, instructional for us, is he pleads his case in a way that is both truthful and respectful. Truthful and respectful. Back up to verse 11. The last part that's underlined there where he says, and he pleads his innocence, he says, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. That's his way of saying, I haven't sinned against you, but you have sinned against me. I am innocent while you are guilty. So he's acknowledging the truth that Saul is in the wrong but he's doing so in a very respectful manner. He comes and he bows down before him, a sign of respect, despite the fact that this man has tried to kill him on numerous occasions. He addresses him as my father. That too is is something I see in the life of David here before the man who has tried to kill him to a man who is corrupt, though in a position of power, is that he still shows him truthful respect. Truthful respect. And I, I think there's, there's a lesson for us too. And how do we treat those who would be unfair towards us, especially in a place of power or authority over us, like a boss or an employer or a president or a congressman or a senate or a, or a government? That is to show respect to your enemies. To show respect, regardless of how you might feel about them. Now I find that to be somewhat of a timely admonition. We're heading into um, an election month. An election month when some of you are probably gonna have people voted in that you're gonna like and agree with, gonna be happy about, celebrate. Others of you are gonna be watching the TV in November and you're gonna want to throw something at your TV because someone is elected that you don't like. Someone's in power that you think is unethical or or, or immoral, or, or is going to be an unjust person in the way that they would deal with the American people. And the question for us as is, is followers of Jesus, so then how are we supposed to relate to the people that God has ultimately placed in office? If, if David could before a king who is trying to kill him and, and has not only done that, but he's wiped out 85 priests and he's... Um, He's completely massacred an entire town. If he can show respect by bowing down and speaking to him with respectful tones, although he still speaks truth, perhaps there's just a little lesson for us. I mean, this is my opinion, but but there is an antagonistic, a politically antagonistic expression of Christianity that betrays the fact that we trust that God is on the throne, that the Lamb is on the throne, he's reigning, and that all governing officials have been placed there by him. And somehow to diminish the effectiveness of our mission because we're so angry and disrespectful in the way that we speak about or of or to them. As I said, David wasn't afraid to speak the truth, which, which I think God's people should. Address issues with truth. Address issues with careful analysis and biblical um, revelation. But to make sure we, 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 we radiate faith as we speak with respect, that we radiate faith in the way that we speak. Um, Otherwise, we dishonor the lamb who's on the throne, who right now rules over all, and according to Romans 13, he's the one who places his people in place. So the final outcomes are up to the Lord. So even if you don't honor the person, you can honor the position, and you can honor the God who put them there. We want to know, as as followers of Jesus, how can we relate in a fallen world to powers that are unjust? Well, one, we can um, refuse to take vengeance and show mercy. The second part, of course, is to show respect. The Apostle Paul told us this too, uh, Romans 13, and, and it's assumed that Nero, a very evil man, was on the throne. Um, in Rome, and he writes to the Romans in Rome underneath this cruel and corrupt um, government or governing authority by the name of Nero. And he, he tells them respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. There's something fundamentally Christian about that. And I, I just hope we have ears to hear it. Ears to hear. But then there's one more way in which David shows us how to deal with Injustice. And that comes in the form of Saul's confession. There's the crisis in the cave. David comes out, kneels, and pleads his innocence. And we find that his plea melts the heart of the sinful king. And that's one of the things oftentimes that goodness in the face of evil will do. Not all the time, but it will melt the heart of eyes to a heart of, 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 uh, of flesh. Now, granted, it's going to be temporary, but it melts his heart. Listen to the plea of Saul, or the confession. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? He's referred to him as son of Jesse, kind of an icy way of referring to him, but here he refers to him as my son. There's an affection that's been restored. And Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. He was broken, Even if it was temporally, by the mercy that David had shown, by the goodness that David had shown in spite of evil, his heart is melted. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. As he read, David read providence correctly, not wrongly. The Lord did bring him in, but not for the purpose of death. Verse 19, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? The implied answer, of course not. Then kill him. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. In this moment, he experiences clarity and he experiences contrition. And then verse 21, he asks for an uncommon kindness of David. He says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring. Those are my children and my grandchildren after me, after I'm dead and gone. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's interesting how, how this plays out, that instead of taking vengeance in the cave, he showed mercy then he shows truthful respect, and it melts the heart of a king, even if it's just for a moment. I mean, that's, that's, that is it provides um, the potential for transformation when God's people, us, you, me, when we're experiencing those things to, um, to have a transformative effect on people by the way in which we treat them as they're unjust and, and, um, and unfair towards us. His heart melted. And then, of course, he asks for this uncommon kindness. Here is the king who has displaced David's family, he attempted to kill David, he has massacred a town and an entire priesthood. And he's saying, Will you swear to me? Will you make a promise to me? David is standing or kneeling before his enemies, and the enemy is saying, Will you promise me a good? And the amazing thing, the astounding thing, is that David swears. He's basically swearing to do good to to Saul's children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and so on. Which explains why to the very end of David's life why he never touched one of the descendants of Saul. He kept his oath long after Saul died. Honoring the promise that he gave his enemy. Now, does does that amaze you at all? Because it amazes me that a man could show an uncommon kindness to a man who's trying to king, an authority that's trying to kill him, swearing an oath in the name of the Lord that I will not harm your children or grandchildren. It is, to me, it's, it's astounding. And that's, that's also yet another way in which I think we as the followers of Jesus are to relate to people who hurt us. Um, people who are unjust or um, unfair in our lives and cause difficulties. Not just to be merciful instead of vengeful and respectful in the way that we speak, respectful though truthful, but also to be willing to show um, uncommon kindness to them. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, you don't know my boss. He's just an evil person, and everything in me screams anger every time I see his face. Or my mother-in-law. <laughs> to this, I think I would just say, you know, we are to show kindness as opportunity affords itself. So David did. He didn't swear until he was asked. Or the guiding and leading of God's Holy Spirit in your life. Um Counsel from wise people as to how should I rightly show kindness to this person. I am not going to show kindness to a pedophile by having him babysit my children. That is completely stupid. That is to show kindness without wisdom can be detrimental to people. So in the application of this, to be able to find ways in which we can wisely, by the guidance of God's Holy Spirit and His opportunities and doors present themselves, to show kindness. Kindness. And I believe that one of, the, one of the purposes or results of this is that we see transformation, at least the possibility. That's how grace and kindness work. It's the kindness that moves people to repentance. It's experiencing something totally different than the world. I don't know who said this, but it's an ancient saying where um, offering evil for evil is demonic, offering good for good is human, offering good for evil is divine because that's God's way of overcoming evil with good. That is, we actually see God's mission of of melted hearts, hearts turned from hate to love, um, from, from stone to flesh. When people experience that goodness and it melts away their heart and transformation is possible. It's part of our mission mandate. We're supposed to love our neighbors. Not all of our neighbors are going to be nice to us. I think this statement, oh, there was the third one in case you didn't get it, to show uncommon kindness to your enemy. There's a statement that really captured it for me. I read a couple years ago, a book by Sam Storms called The Singing God, where he wrote, when your enemy perceives good for, for evil, it surprises and shames him. It surprises, he expects evil. And it shames him, he realizes his guilt when you show good for evil. Both of which have the potential to transform his heart. That's part of the reason why. You want people to come to Jesus, including people who are darkened and unfair and malicious? Well, show mercy instead of vengeance. And, um, and show respect and, and show kindness. Now at this point you're going to say, to me, some of you, I, I just can't do that. Like where would I ever find the strength of will to do that? To treat someone who hurts me that way. And that's where I think we come down to what we believe about God. What we believe about God. And I'm not talking about what you know with your head. I'm talking about what you have realized with your heart. I love that word realized. It has a word real in it. Real eyes. Faith to me is the realization of truth, what becomes real in your heart. There was truth that was made real in David's heart that enabled him to act in these amazing ways, Christ like ways. One of those truths, this is a why, because we can trust God as the avenging judge. We can trust God as our avenging judge. You notice he said it twice in here. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it. That's a way of saying he will implement justice and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He acknowledges that God is judge he is the one who sentences he is the one who executes and he is the one who delivers that is he he and he really believes it it's when we really don't believe that god is just and will avenge evil that we begin taking the reins ourselves and it almost always blows up in our face returning evil for evil or trying to execute justice ourselves There was this belief that God is just, that he ultimately will resolve all wrongs, which he will at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. It may require that the man or woman of God has to wait for God to do it in his way, in his time, but it's something that when we really believe it, we can entrust to him, and we don't have to hold it in our hands anymore because his hands have it. Psalm 37, it's a psalm of injustice and how David deals with it. And he says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Like he will come through and you can trust him with all of those things. Now, does that mean we're never to hire a lawyer and go to court? When there's injustice, of course not. Provided we go through the, the, the means that God has given to, to pursue justice, especially when it will bring benefit to others or protection for the innocent and um, powerless. But ultimately, our trust doesn't reside there in human institutions of justice. But we ultimately trust that, God, you have this covered, and I, can, I can, really can release this to you. And you're going to say, well, what about the emotions? I'm just ticked off. And that's where I think the, the Psalms are of enormous importance for us because there are some pretty... Angry psalms. David, speaking in Psalm uh, 3, Lord, shatter the teeth of my enemy. It's like the Lord's saying to you, listen, I understand you're angry at, at, at injustice, you're indignant. I get that, so am I. In fact, I'm far more passionate about justice than you are. So if you want to vent to somebody, you can vent to me. So when you feel the urge to be angry or indignant, tell me about it. Because I am the one who ultimately will bring justice. That's one of the things that we believe in our faith when we go from knowledge to realization is that we realize God really is just. He's got this covered. So that frees me to act with mercy and respect and kindness. And then one final reason, which is really more from the Bible itself, and this is perhaps, I think, the most important of all. Why show mercy, respect, and kindness to people who hurt you? Because God loved us while we were his enemies. Until you and I really get it at a realization level that I was an enemy of God because of my sin, we will never fully understand grace or be transformed by love. That God himself put on human flesh, and he was reviled, spit upon, he was butchered, and he was crucified. For the sake, not of his friends, but for the sake of his enemies. If if David showed mercy, respect, and kindness because he trusted the Lord, because he is a man after God's own heart, then it seems to me when we come to Jesus, who is the king, that he is not a man after God's own heart. He is God's own heart and offers his life for his enemies. That's the heart of the Lord. And it's the heart of the Lord for you and toward me, toward all of his people, is he showed mercy and kindness to us when we were his enemies. I don't know if it's accidental or providential, but there are two men One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, named Saul. Old Testament, King Saul that we just read about, whom David was willing to love as his enemy. In the New Testament, another man by the name of Saul, who is also an enemy of the king. Saul of Tarsus, who killed Christians and imprisoned Christians, an enemy of the cross, enemy of Jesus. And on the way to Damascus, as he was heading to do more harm to the kingdom of God, Jesus met him. And instead of squashing him like a bug, Jesus takes his enemy and makes him his greatest advocate. And it's one of the reasons I think Paul gets grace. His Greek name is Paul, Old Testament, Hebrew name Saul. He gets grace. Why he writes about it so, so powerfully is because he gets it. I was an enemy and God loved me and died for me anyway. And it's what melted and transformed his life. So that he could write by way of conviction. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son. Much more now that we reconciled shall be saved by his life. We as enemies. Reconciled by death and given life and saved by his life. That's the heart of God. If you want people in your life to see the heart of God. Then this is how we're supposed to respond. And this is why we're supposed to respond that way. Because God loved us this way. So. So. Those names that you put on that list. I hope you did. Those names that you put on the list. How is it that I believe God wants us to show forth His heart and spread a passion for Jesus? Well, in the same way that David did, in the same way that Jesus did. Be merciful, be respectful, show kindness as wisdom dictates, but do so trusting that the Lord is the judge. And and knowing and believing and experiencing in your own heart that God died for you when you were his enemy. And you know what might happen? That icy, cold heart of evil might just melt and transform by the grace of God through the goodness of your actions towards someone who is your enemy. Will you just take just a moment, just whether mental or physical, just say, Lord, help me To love this way. My enemy is trusting in you. Help me to love these people on this list. We're coming up to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Help me this Christmas not to respond in vengeance but in mercy, to show respect in my words and find ways to just show kindness because it's what transforms. Spend a couple of moments just talking with the Lord about this and then John, let's worship.